And so God came to Solomon to warn him about that. And and this was a massive undertaking that the temple, when the temple was dedicated, uh, the Bible describes there were 22,000 oxen that were sacrificed for the dedication of the temple. In addition to the 22,000 oxen, there were 120,000 sheep that had been sacrificed. So you think about how massive, that, that's a massive number of animals that were sacrificed as part of the worship and part of the dedication of the temple. And so this had been a huge celebration. This had been a huge undertaking. This is something that took a while to plan and to implement. I mean, it went on for over a week. And so this was the end. And so this was a time of great rejoicing, a time of great celebration. The temple was uh, was to be, in their eyes, a place where God would dwell. In our eyes, it was a symbol of that dwelling place, but it was a place for them that really spoke to them about a permanence and really spoke to them about Jerusalem being established. And it wasn't just the establishment of the building that we call the temple, but it was the establishment of God's people that they were no longer wandering. They were no longer uh, moving from place to place, but they were in their place. And Jerusalem was the center of that place. And so to them, this was an establishment. This was a a time and a place where they're saying, okay, this is where we belong and that's it. Because think about up until this time, they would worship at a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was what had been in use since Moses' time when they had crossed the wilderness and they had come into the promised land and they were migrating for 40 years. And they didn't really have an established place. And then even after they had come into the promised land and they had conquered the promised land, they still used the tabernacle. That was their place of worship. And the tabernacle, by definition, was built in order to be packed up and moved if necessary or when the time came. And so the building of the temple, a stone structure, a stone and wood structure that it was, was really a a moment of change for them a momentous time for them to look at something and to say, okay, well, we're here and this is it. And so God warns Solomon after the dedication of the temple. And I found that interesting because you would think, all right, well, this is a great time of celebration. Well, God had other concerns. God's not so concerned about building a a stone building. He's not so concerned about building the the stone and wood building that would be the temple. He He's concerned about our worship, sure. He's concerned about our relationship, yeah. He's concerned about us following after Him, he sure is. And he, he writes down some of these things, and, and this is what he's telling Solomon here. He's like, these are the things that I'm concerned about. And what, he, and the, what the basis of his concern with Solomon and the reason he's warning him is that he could see ahead. And, and even though Jerusalem was established, even though God's people were established, even though they had a permanent place there in the temple, God could see ahead and what was coming. People falling away. People worshiping idols, other gods. I mean, he could see that coming and he warned Solomon. He's like, you've got to keep at the forefront what he believes is important. 
You gotta keep at the forefront what matters. I mean, David worshiped God perfectly fine without a stone and wood building. David ran a kingdom perfectly fine without that stone and wood building. God's people were established in that country, in that nation, perfectly fine without a stone and wood building. Without any sense of permanency that that provided, they were perfectly fine where they were. Because their God had given them a sense of belonging. Their God had given them a sense of permanency. Their God had spoken to them and said, this is where I have you and this is what I have you to be. And they heard Him. And there they were. So, I want you to, to hear that warning there. And, and I want you to hear that, that the guy is speaking to Solomon. I mean, the wisest guy that ever lived, sure. But he's speaking to him about the perils of becoming complacent. He's speaking about the perils of putting your trust in the wrong thing. The perils of, of finding yourself in, in a place of, I've got faith in what? The wrong thing. And that's part of the problem. And that was part of the problem that would overtake God's people. And it's part of the, the, the whole issue that they were going to face when they became complacent, when they became and they got distracted, when they were bored, and they went after other gods and they went after idols. This is part of that equation. I, I was going to mention this. I, earlier today I was reading through the Gospels. I'm in Luke right now. And I was reading in Luke 10. And this has nothing to do with tonight, but is in light of yesterday. I was talking about peace and how peace was the first word that was spoken after the resurrection. Well, you know, interestingly, in, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is sending out the 72. You know that story, how he empowered them, and he sent them out, and they had power over to, to cast out demons and to heal the sick, and they had power to preach the, the gospel and all that. Well, he was telling them, he's giving them instruction on how they're supposed to enter a city. And he's giving them the instruction, he says, okay, so you go into a house, and here's what you say when you enter the house. You know what the first word he told them to say when they entered the house? Peace. Peace. So, again, and I'm just saying this because I didn't bring this up yesterday, but think about, it's like, what was the first word of the gospel in the cities that the 72 went? Peace. Peace be unto this house. If they're able to receive it, they'll remain with them. But again, that's the first word that's being spoken over these people and over these cities. It's the first word of the gospel. So I just want to say that because I was reading it. I was like, hey, that's awesome. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one excited about that. But that was really good. And so as you look at the temple, you know, what's the temple? It's a symbol. Yeah, it's a place for sure. It's a house. It's kind of... Um, I, I, I hesitate to say this because I know that there's verses that someone could take and back this up, but it, it's, it's kind of juvenile to think that there's a house and God lives in it. Because uh, we know that God is described in the Scriptures as being everywhere all the time. So, you know, everywhere is His house. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I mean, the earth is His footstool. I mean, it's, 
it, it's, it's kind of immature to think and say, oh, well, God lived in the temple. Well, there may have been His presence at the temple, that's for sure, and there may have been some special place of meeting at the temple that God utilized the temple to meet with people and all of that, but I, to say that He lived there or to have that kind of an idea in your mind I think is a, a little bit um, not so adultish. And so I, I want you to consider that the temple for us was symbolic in a sense of God's presence. Because if you go to the New Testament, where's the temple? Who's the temple of, the, of God? We are. So I'm the temple. So that means God lives in me? Yeah, He does, but does He live in you? Yeah. And does He live in the next person? Yeah, if they know Jesus and they've, you know, they've invited Him in and the Holy Spirit fills them, well, they're the temple too. And He lives in them. And He lives in you and He lives in me. And the fact of the matter is He is everywhere all the time. And so, so maybe that the fact that we have a space in us where that, that God habitates in a certain sense, that He fills in a certain sense, that He chooses to make a meeting place, in a certain sense, maybe that's important. And so we recognize that and we honor that. And so I guess in that sense you can see it that way, but to limit that to just one spot in one city, in one nation, in one part of the world, and just say, well, that's the only place God dwelled, I don't think that that's accurate. I don't think that's true. And so I invite you to expand that a little bit. To expand your understanding of how God works and, and how God can pay attention to you like just 100% that, that you could never tell the difference. He's not paying attention to you, but He could be paying attention to a million other people or two million other people or a billion other people at the same time. Because that's, that's who He is. And so the, the temple was important. It was important as a symbol to the nation. It was important as a place of meeting. It was important as a place of gathering. It was important as a place of celebration. But it may not have been important the same way that it, it took on to the people who were actually alive and were actually going there during that day. I think by the time Jesus was around, which that would have been a different temple, when Jesus was around, I think the temple had taken on some other weirder meaning. But the seeds of that weirder meaning <coughs> excuse me, were being planted even here and now, and that's something God was warning against. So God uh, gives them this word. He says to them that there are people with a future. If, and here's the, here's the way he says this, if they will walk before their God. Now, walking with God is kind of an interesting history because you've got to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And you look at Adam and Eve and part of their, whoever they were and whatever happened, we don't know how long they were in the Garden. I don't think it was like 10 minutes or anything. I, I think it was they were there and it's unmeasured. So we don't really know how long that they lived there. But they lived there long enough to name all the animals. They lived there long enough to, to uh, the man, to find a woman, or to, God to make a woman for the man, make a companion. 
They lived there long enough that they lived together. They lived there long enough that they were walking through the garden in the cool of the day with their God. And they were spending time with Him. And so the idea behind walking with God is a couple things behind that. One is that God isn't far off. That God isn't way out there somewhere, but that there's a companionship that is an expectation. There's a companionship that is described, that is expected with God. And so it talks about walking before Him or walking with Him. And the idea is is that we are sharing that space. We are sharing that life with our God. And so they were expected to do that. And God's descriptor starts with that and starts with that expectation is that there are people that are going to walk before their God. They're going to travel. They're going to live. They're going to mature. They're going to go somewhere. Interestingly, they're not sitting before their God. They're not sleeping before their God. They're not even napping before their God. They're walking with Him. It's not stationary, but it's dynamic. It's not just uh, described in one way, but it's something that is saying, okay, we're on the move. Where are we going? Well, if you're walking before your God, you're walking with your God, I guess, you know, I don't know if you ever walk with somebody, but usually somebody gives way, or else you're not going to be walking with them very long, because one person will go one way, the other person will go the other way, and so you give way, you kind of, you know, walk together, because you're together, and you're walking, so... So with God, it's like, well, that's our giveaway. You know, if we want to stay with Him, that's us saying, all right, well, I'll go where you go. And it's taking the time to walk with Him and to spend with Him. Well, that's what's being described here. And it says that if we will walk before our God in, in the way that He's describing, that we have a, we're people with a future. And, and the idea behind that is just really staying faithful to Him. And I can't overemphasize the idea of faithfulness because God honors faithfulness in His people. Somebody look at Jeremiah 7.4. Jeremiah 7.4 and read that. So this is the this is a verse. This is a, a prophetic word, but it's a word that had already been given to Solomon. It's like if you trust in the building, you miss the point. If you say, "Well, God will never allow His temple to be destroyed," well, He did. That was absolutely wrong. That that was not correct. It wasn't correct for the people to trust in that building or trust in the symbolic the, the symbolism of the building. It's like. You know, when, when the, these nations, when Nebuchadnezzar or whoever is in charge of the Babylonian Empire, the Chaldeans, came and they say, yeah, we're going to destroy Jerusalem. Well, that was held off for a while, but there were prophets like Jeremiah telling the king, they're going to come and they're going to destroy this place. He was telling them that. And if you read the story, the first time the Chaldeans came to Jerusalem, the, the then king of Jerusalem, the then king of, of Judah, Gave him a full tour of the temple. I don't know if you know this story, but 
they sent their envoy, and he was so proud of the temple and so proud of everything they had. Like, oh, look, this is what we have inside the temple. We have solid gold shields in here, and we have solid gold instruments, and we have solid gold vessels, and we have solid gold plates. Look, and there's silver. Look at all the silver. We've got this big treasury in here with lots more gold and lots more silver. And these are things that have been built up over the years by David and Solomon and things that have been stored in the temple. And he gave him a grand tour of the temple. And guess what? When the Chaldeans did come, and they, and they did overtake Jerusalem, and they overran the gates of Jerusalem, and I mean, they, they went and they starved them out first, and they overran them. They took that temple and they destroyed it. But before they destroyed it, they went in there and got those gold shields, they went in there and got all the silver vessels and the gold vessels and the gold instruments and all the, the money that was in there and all the silver and all the precious stuff that they'd been shown. They'd pretty much given an inventory of everything that was in there. They went in there and they got it and they hauled it back to Babylonia. Not the smartest move. But that's what pride does for you. Look at all this stuff we got. We're somebody. We got all this gold and all the silver in here. Look, see, we're somebody. Got to prove you're somebody? Yeah, well, then they just got robbed. Nice job, somebody. Now you're nobody. Now you don't have a temple and you ain't got any money. Just because of pride. So faithfulness, faithfulness is honored. And that's what he's being reminded of. He's been reminded that, that faithfulness matters. As, uh, you know rebellion? Oh, rebellion, Saul. Saul got a good word from Samuel. Well, it wasn't a good word for him, but it's a good word for us to remember. Saul got this word. It's like obedience is better than sacrifice. Rebellion is that the sin of, you know what it is? Witchcraft. No good. Nobody likes the witches, except for Westcott. Nobody else likes the witches. So, interesting, I've done enough studies on that, why he said that, and I'm not going to get into that too much right now, but the idea behind it, and, and I want you to, let that sink in. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And, and, and whether you can understand that fully to what it means, since you've heard the teachings, or all you need to do is look at that and say, well, that's a serious sin. Rebellion is as serious as witchcraft. It's that anti-God. That anti-God. And so what he is speaking and what he is saying, what God is speaking to Solomon, is the idea that faithfulness is what matters, remaining faithful. If they remained faithful with the tabernacle, they were better off. If they remained faithful without the tabernacle, they were better off. If they remained faithful without the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, they were better off. If they remained faithful without a lot of the things that they thought that they might need. They were better off remaining faithful than having all of those things with them. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us. To be faithful is more important than having a building. More important. 
To be faithful is more important than having stuff. To be faithful is more important than having money. To be faithful is more important than a lot of things that people think are so important. You ever wonder why we never bought a building as a church? We could have bought a building by now. Just as a hint. We could have. It was possible. We were even offered buildings. But part of what God made in us and part of how God started this church was that we weren't going to be that way. We even discussed toward the beginning of the church when we were putting together our founding documents to have a sunset clause in the founding documents that after 20 years or 25 years, the church would close and if anybody wanted to start up another one, if there were enough people that were interested in it, they could start their own and start from the beginning and see what happens so that we don't find ourselves depending on forms or we don't find ourselves depending on you know, stuff that doesn't matter anymore and stuff that doesn't mean anything and stuff that's not important because there's a lot of stuff that's just not important. And so as, as we look and we see the things that he's speaking of, number one, the thing I just want you to hear, faithfulness. I can't overemphasize it. I can't say it enough. I can't, I can't even, you know, somehow make it seem any less important than it is. It is key to our life, key to our, our, our living and continued abundant life in Jesus. It's faithfulness. And so, describing what that looks like, God speaks to Solomon about an honest heart. Some of your Bibles, I think, use the phrase honest heart. Or might say something else. But you think about it, it's like that honest heart, all that that means. And, and all it means is that you're honest about who you are. And, and God looks for that. He looks for that in David. He looks for that in Solomon. He looks for that in us. Is that we're just honest about it. Like, who are you? What are your strengths? Well, you need to know what your strengths are. That's important. You're doing yourself a favor by knowing what your strengths are. I don't mean stuff you're making up. I don't, I don't mean stuff that you think are your strengths. I mean your actual strengths. Having a, a really honest understanding of areas that you're strong in. Areas that you're good at. Areas that, that you know, are gifts and talents or whatever it is you want to think of them as. But you've got to know what your strengths are. And, and, and that's not being proud. That's not being boastful. That's just being honest. That's part of having an honest heart is to understand your strengths. Well, I don't have any strengths. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And if you want to say, I don't have any, well, that's a lie. That is a lie to even say that. That's a lie to even entertain that. Because we all have strengths. But we need to be honest about what our actual strengths are. You know, I, you know, I see people, they'll, they'll say things, and I'm always shocked by this, when people say things like, yeah, I'm really good at such and such. And my first thought is, no, you're not. <laughs> and so, how did it come up that you thought you were really good at such and such? What's the evidence of that? 
Right? And, and that's part of being honest about it. You know, if, if, uh, if you think you're really good at, I don't even know. I, I, I hate to even say anything because if I say something, somebody's going to be offended. You know, but it'd be something like, well, I'm really good at cooking. Well, okay, well then you should be able to cook. In other words, you should be able to cook and you should be able to make some dishes and it should be edible and good. All right? That's some tangible proof that you're good at cooking. And if you're okay at cooking, well then you're okay at cooking. That's all right. You don't have to be good at cooking. You could be okay at cooking. Even You could even be bad at cooking. Then maybe that's not your strength. Maybe that's one of your weaknesses. That's okay. All right? And, and I'm not trying to say one thing is better than the other or this or that. All I'm saying is just be honest about it. I'm a great lock picker. But you've never picked a lock in your life. How do you know? Just, uh, I, I mean... And I, I could go on, and but like I said, I'd name something that's going to make somebody mad, so I'm not going to. But all I'm trying to say is, is just be honest. All I'm trying to say is just be, be true. Because you've got to be true about your strength, you've got to be true about your weaknesses. You've got weaknesses in your life. We all have weaknesses in our lives. We all do. And it's important to understand what our weaknesses are. Why, why do you think that's important? Why would it be important for you to know what your weaknesses are? So you can what? You can fight it or you can ask for help. Yeah. Or you can find ways to strengthen it. Okay. Physical, like I, I think in terms of physical weaknesses, like let's say somebody has a, a physical weakness. All right. I'm going to tell you something I'm not supposed to tell you. You ready? If you have joint pain, nine times out of ten, it's because you're weak. All right? The experts all know that. But they won't tell you that because they don't want you to get upset. They don't want you to get mad about it. They want you to believe that it's a degenerative condition. Or they want you to believe that it's something. Or they'll just tell you, like a doctor will say, well, it's arthritis. Everything's arthritis. Everything, everything is arthritis. Well, it can't be helped. You can't do anything about it. Yeah, you can. Nine times out of ten, you have joint pain. It's because you're weak around the joint. And if you understand that as weakness, and I'm saying 90%, I didn't say 100%, 90%, you understand it's weakness around your joint, you can strengthen around that joint. And I can't tell you how many people sitting in this room I have watched reverse reverse deterioration in the joint. How many people have witnessed reverse joint pain? How do they do it? Because they get stronger. They do things to strengthen the joint. The muscle and the tissue around the joint strengthen and at the same time they might lose some weight and all of a sudden the joints don't hurt anymore. Or at least not nearly as bad as they used to. Now, I know I'm not supposed to tell you that, and some of you start arguing with me immediately. Argue all you want. Good luck with that. Because if you see it as weakness, and you understand it as weakness, 
you might be able to strengthen it. You might be able to turn it around. You might be able to see something different happen in your life. Maybe. But see, honesty will get you there. And you need to be honest about other things. You guilt. Some of you carry guilt in your life. Being honest about that guilt, bringing it to light. Somebody can pray with you about that. Somebody can pronounce forgiveness over you. Somebody can minister forgiveness into your life if we know you feel guilty. Maybe you can ask forgiveness. And somebody will forgive you and that will be the end of it and you'll never think of it again. But that's what honesty does. And, and an honest heart will do is I, I do feel guilty about this. Well, alright. How do we go about ministering forgiveness to that? And cleansing and healing and release and freedom. An honest heart is honest about failings. It's important to understand when you fail and not cover it up. And I'm not even talking to other people. I'm just talking in your own mind. It's important to understand when you fail. Alright, that was a bad decision. What can you learn from a bad decision? Don't do it again. That was a bad decision. But if you pretend it was the cosmos against you, and they were all working against you, and it all aligned badly, and it was just happenstance that the occurrence happened against you, well, you might be more likely to make that bad decision again, and again, and again, and again, when it would have been okay just to say you failed. To start with, understand that. And I'm not even saying say it out loud. In your own mind, understanding that you failed, and then maybe you won't do it again. It's a failure. Not the best decision. Pretty bad decision. Let's not repeat that. Okay. Triumphs. It's important to know when you triumph. It's important to celebrate when you triumph. It's important to understand when you triumph. Why? Because you want to do that again. Alright? I want to do that one again. And again, you don't dismiss a triumph. You don't dismiss, you know, winning. To, oh, happenstance and luck. Nope, you probably made a few good decisions along the way. You probably were in the right place at the right time. And something happened and you won. You're victorious. You triumph. Hey, let's do that again. I like that. Does this make sense to you? You follow what I'm saying? You see, these are the advantages of an honest heart. And I'm going to use another word for you. And, and maybe some of you, it will bring some meaning to this word. But the word that often is used in this case, especially in Christian circles, religious circles, is they use the word integrity. And that means just being honest. Integrity, by this definition, is adherence to principle. And what it does is it describes a situation where something is sound. It's solid. And, and that's really what's being described with an honest heart. Is it's just solid. In other words, it's like, this is where I'm strong, this is where I'm weak, these are my feelings, this is, these are my failings, these are my triumphs, these are my victories. And understanding all of those things so that we're not hiding from ourselves and from God who we really are. That is integrity. 
It's a soundness of being. It's an adherence to a principle that I love God and God loves me. And I'm going to live my life before Him and I'm going to walk with Him. And He's going to walk with me. Because that's what we're created to do. Adam and Eve, God didn't make any mistakes with that. They were created to walk with Him. They were created to fellowship with Him. They were created to be with Him. That was what they were created to do. And that's what we're created to do. And how that happens is that we're going to live our lives before Him, not hiding. When they get in trouble in the garden, well, they were hiding from Him. And they put on some animal skins to cover up and be modest and all that stuff. And that's when they were in trouble. That was the beginning of the end. That wasn't how they were created. They were created to live freely in front of Him and each other. And just be who they were. You see, we're called to that unvarying loyalty to God and an allegiance to God's truth. That's what we're called to. That is the honest heart. That is the honest heart. And and notice I'm telling you, who you need to be honest with, you and God. That's it. Alright? I think the rest follows from that, but to start with, all you need to think about is I'm going to be honest with myself and I'm going to be honest with my God. Great place to start. Great place to start. Great place to begin to to build a faithfulness in your life. But an honest heart is without blame. There's a a word upright. An honest heart is without blame. And it, it's really marked by us withdrawing from the common manner of people. What do I mean by that? It means that we find ourselves being upright. And there's an there's a easy way to think about upright. Upright is correct in our decisions and understandings. Being correct in our decisions and our understandings. And an honest heart leads us into a place where we're going to be correct in our decisions and our understandings more often. Now, do I mean all the time? No. And and this is something that I've talked about before and it's so hard for us to understand. We don't live in absolute language. I, you know, in other words, the, the world doesn't exist in opposites and the world doesn't exist in extremes and and the world doesn't exist in the way that our mind sometimes wants it to because it's just not the truth. You know, sometimes if it's not hot, it's cold. But more than often than not, if it's not hot, it may be kind of warm or kind of cool, but not cold. And if something's not high, maybe it's not low either. And we don't have to think in those kind of weird extremes because even though our brain wants to put things into this nice, tightly packed order of things of this and that, black and white, whatever happened to red and pink and blue? No, no, it's got to be black or white. Well, there's lots of colors. Maybe it's not. And so when we, we start talking about being without blame, when we talk about a strong 
strongly being correct in our decisions and understanding. Does that mean 100% of the time? No. But what it does mean is that they were, we're trending and we're tending toward being correct in our decisions and our understandings more than not. And as we grow, we begin to see more and more of that happening. To be a people without blame is to be a people who are upright. And we need to, if we're going to do that, withdraw from the common manner of people. Because most people follow their desires and their feelings, mainly. And so that creates a problem. And I know you, know, you hear on TV or in songs, follow your heart. I know you do, but it creates a problem. Because the heart is deceitful. And so because the heart is deceitful above all things, you follow your heart long enough, you follow your feelings, you follow your desires long enough, you're going to get hurt. And you're going to hurt other people. You know, it's the the little kid that's like, but I want it. Yeah, I know. What are you, three years old? I need it. I doubt that. But, you know, we have desires, we have feelings, that's for sure. But if those are dictating our life, we're in a certain amount of peril. And it's very difficult for us to live without blame and to live an upright life if that's how we're going to live. We have to reject that. There's got to be something more leading us. There's got to be something more guiding us than whatever we want, our desires or our feelings. And we we have to withdraw from that if we're really going to take hold of something better for our lives. The Bible's full of people that followed their heart. It doesn't end well. It does not end well. Ever. And because it doesn't ever end well, I mean, you can look and you can say, yeah, but I'm different. No, you're not. Well, this is a different situation. No, it's not. Well, that won't happen to me. Yeah, it will. Because some of the people in the Bible that that happened to, they got all messed up. They were much better people than you. And much better people than me. And if they get led astray, and if they get drawn away by their desires and their feelings, If that's what happens to them, I don't know why we would ever think that would not happen to us. Because it's gonna. I mean, David was a better man than I'll ever be. And he was led astray by his feelings and his desires. And I can go down a list of people in the scriptures that were led astray by their feelings and desires. And they were all better people than me. So I have to take seriously the call to withdraw from that manner of living. I have to take seriously the call to withdraw from being led by my desires and being led by my emotions. And again, this is a general condition. This is an absolute. That our, Do our emotions affect us? Sure. Do our desires affect us? 
Sure, but should that be the final decision maker? No. No. You know, people talk to me about, and, uh, you know, just, just about, well, how do you know uh, when it's the one? Talking about relationships? How do you know when it's the one? How do I know? Well, you're married. Yeah. Well, how did you know? You don't know what my answer to that is? So those of you that know my story, you know what my answer to that is. Anybody? You don't know what my answer is? How did I know? You ready? God told me. Yeah. Yeah. And if I hadn't had a word, it would have never happened. Never. And I'd made that decision long before it came down to that. Because you know what? I had made a mistake already. I would already made a mistake. And I was about a month away from getting married to somebody that would have made my life miserable. And it was a month out that I just, I just couldn't do it. I woke up one morning. I felt like the Holy Spirit was on it. He said, you need to break this thing off now. And I did. I got up. I called that girl's mother. And I just told her on the phone. I'm like, I'm out. I'm not doing this. Oh, you don't mean that. You know, you're just nervous. Like, no, I'm not nervous at all. I'm just not going to do it. So, I'll return everything I have. You keep all the the rings and everything else. Because we already bought everything. Everything. And I said, uh, I'll return the gifts that we've received. And uh, we'll just work it out. And that was it. I hung up the phone. I was done. I made that mistake. I made the mistake of following my heart. And, it would, and I know it would have led me to disaster. I could see it. I could smell it. I could hear it. Every time I was getting nagged at, I could hear it. It was done. So, the only way that was going to happen is God needed to say. There's got to be something bigger going on in our life than just what we feel are just what we want. And I want to encourage you that there is something bigger. I want to encourage you that there is a better word. I want to encourage you that there is a better way of seeing things and a better way of understanding things. And like I said, I'm not talking about an absolute way of life. Oh, I need to get a word from the Lord to go buy milk. No, that's not what I'm saying. I could really go for some ice cream, but I need that word from Jesus. No, just go get some ice cream. This is not I'm not I'm not trying to make you a weirdo. Alright? I'm not trying to make your life into some weird thing. But there are certain decisions that are gonna happen in our life. We really need to get a better word on it than just how we feel about it. We need to get a better word on it, just whatever our desire is for it. If you want ice cream, go get ice cream. That ain't that who cares? You want something, you know, whatever. You want to go down, you need, you want some eggs? Go get some eggs. You know, whatever. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to make you into a weirdo. I'm trying to, to say that there's some, some things in our life that we need to get straight. That's all. You know, we, we need some guiding principles in our life. You know, going back to some integrity. This is how it goes. This is where my heart is. That I'm going to have integrity and, and honesty about me and this is how I'm going to go about my life this is what I'm going to do 
Because, I mean, what was being described as Solomon, that's who David was. That was his life. That's who he was. Because, again, he miscarried on some things. You know, like uh, Bathsheba or whatever. I mean, he numbering the people. He, he, he made mistakes and he sinned and he did things he shouldn't have done. But as a general course of life, he is faithful. He was a man after God's own heart. And I'll say this again, he was a better person than us. And he had those moments and he had those times where he went the wrong direction and the wrong thing got a hold of him, whether it was pride or whether it was some emotion in him or whether it was some desire that he had. Got a hold of him and he went off and he did the wrong thing. But as a general course of his life, he lived for God. And he lived in obedience. You know, there's some words from God that are conditional. You understand that, right? That if you receive a word of prophecy, it doesn't mean, you know, some words of prophecy are based on other things. And that's okay. There's plenty of those in the Bible. And they're called conditional prophecies. Somebody look at Psalm 132.12. Psalm 132.12. Okay, how do you know what structure there tells you that's conditional? If and then. Did you see that? Kind of pick that one out for if and then. Just to show that's a conditional prophecy. Alright, so... If this happens, then this will happen. And so what you're looking for here is a general course for your life. It's not perfection. There's no such thing as perfection except for Jesus and His Daddy. So you got perfection in God, but we're not perfect. And we're not going to be perfect. What you're looking for is a general course. A general course of uprightness, faithfulness, integrity. Not every detail. Not every detail is going to be that, but looking for a faithfulness. And if you are faithful, here's what I'll tell you. If you're faithful as a general course of your life, God will do His part. That's how it works. If you're faithful, God does His part. Right? He does. And sometimes He does what He does anyway, even when we're unfaithful. That's how full of grace and mercy and love He is toward us. But if you want to look at something, something for you to, to, to really base your life and to say, okay, here's the, the direction I'm going in. This is your general course. Uprightness, faithfulness, integrity in your life. Not every detail, but the general course. That's where you should be heading. And you read about a lot of the words that God gives over His people. Words of provision, words of protection, words of, of blessing, words of leading. Words of, I mean, all these words that God gives over His people that we have secured as God's people. Well, God will do His part. I read in the Bible, I read all the things God says He'll do for His people. Awesome. I need a general course in my life of uprightness, faithfulness, integrity, honesty of heart, God does His part.
Last thing he says, God says to Solomon, is, is something that I say to you guys all the time, something that Jesus said over and over again, something we see in the Scriptures over and over again. This is a general principle word all over the Bible. Here it is. Hear and do. Hear and do. And basically what God speaks to Solomon is an echo of what David's last words were. And this is our last uh, Bible. Turn to uh, 1 Kings 2. 1 Kings 2, 3 and 4. First Kings two, three and four. And observe what the Lord your God requires, walk in obedience to him, and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to you. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, all right. And if you go back and you look at First uh, Kings nine four, and and afterward, you see this is an echo. This is God speaking to Solomon. Same thing that David has spoken, and these are the things that he says over and over again. So I want you to understand this is not just a one time thing. Like oh. Uh, here's the idea, now go with it. This is a, a principle. This is something that God has said. This is something that God laid out. And he says, this is how I want you to live. And I don't think there's anything complicated about it. And it's so easy to overcomplicate. It's so easy to, to get lost in the details of stuff. But there's no, nothing to get lost in here. He's looking for a general course of our lives. He's looking for a trajectory of where we're heading. And, and if you mess up tomorrow... Well, get back on track. If you make a mistake tonight, get back on track. You do the wrong thing, and, and, and you, or you say the wrong thing, or you, whatever. Well, you get an opportunity. Get back on track. We're looking for a general course of life here. We're not, we're not looking for every moment, every second, every detail of your life. Nobody's looking at that. Now, I know some of you that grew up religious, you were taught that. You've got to get free. That's not the way it happens. It's not the way it happened. That's not what's going on. It never has been what's going on. God didn't design it that way. He didn't make us that way. So I want to take a few moments and I want to pray. And really just, uh, I'm just going to ask God for a couple things over us. And I just pray we just keep it simple. I beg you to just keep it simple in your life. That you just keep it simple and, and really just moving ahead. Kind of in that general path, that general road for your life. Stop sweating stuff that doesn't matter. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would set people free tonight from the lies of their childhood. 
that some of us that grew up with parents that were perfectionists or that were a little bit obsessive-compulsive or whatever it is that would have misrepresented you. Number one, we forgive them. And I pray, God, that you would set us free from those expectations that we've applied to you. Because they're not yours. And they never were. I pray, God, for people who be set free from false ideas of religion that were spoken over them to try and control them. I pray you would set them free. In Jesus' name. But God, I ask you for a freedom to live and to be the people that you've called us to be. To not worry about every second or everything, but to be free really to find our life in you. God, I thank you that you call us to a general path, a, a general trajectory of our life, a general way of moving forward that has to do with a, just an honesty of heart an integrity, an uprightness, a faithfulness, stuff that matters. And I pray, God, that we can focus on and major in the stuff that matters. So lead us, God. Pray that we'd hear you and do what you say. I pray, God, that we'd live in your grace and your mercy. We'd live in your love. Because I thank you, Lord, it is abundant. Abundant. More than we can even imagine. Thanks, God. Thanks. We'll give you honor and we'll give you praise tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to live. To really live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. 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 UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah. 